woman, and uh, inadvertently, we had two women leading us in worship today. Not planned. So if you went home and went, man, they're so, they're so savvy. Totally an accident. So it um, works out that way. Hey, Ruth 1, if you have a Bible, turn to Ruth chapter 1. Uh, we'll get to this in a moment. Um, who, was here, who was here for the night of worship? Anybody? Let me know. Yeah, okay. Uh, I did this at the end. Last time I'll do the beginning uh, this hour. Um, first service is kind of like a sound check for me as well. Uh, so some stuff gets shipped around. But let me show you some my three favorite photos from the evening. The first one is this one. These are taken with Instagram. Anybody do Instagram? Thank you. All right. You can follow me. Instagram, Derek Sweatman. Uh, this is the guitar pedal. Did anyone know that there's that much magic on the floor when you play guitar? So you're like, how does he make that sound? Well, it's right there. It's pedal number seven. Um, but I like this picture not just for the pedal, but mostly for the Air Jordans. Are you with me on that? So I had to get a, I mean, what year are those? Does anybody? Anybody? No? Okay. 80, really? 87. All right. <laughs> Section one, they called it at 87. Okay. Uh, very cool. Next slide. Hard to get all of this in, but um, 14 songs on the set list. But 40 minutes of this, which is circles and prayer and discussion, it's very cool. I can't get everybody in on the picture, but we spent a lot of time just in groups. Um, and really, the, the, the marching orders for the groups is very simple. Just get together, make sure everybody knows your name, and then if there's something uh, you need to pray about for someone, then you guys can do that together. And so that's what we did. And then we ended with this big, next slide, this big prayer thing. Uh, in the middle of the room, we threw Jessica in the middle of the room because she's moving back to Ohio, which she's here today, which sort of, hey, hey, Jessica. So, uh, <laughs> by the way, Jessica's officially off the clock. Do not ask her where materials are, what her kids are doing next week. Um, but it was really fun to, uh, to do this ancient church practice of just laying hands on people and praying for them. And so uh, there's something about the touch. When Jesus would heal people, he would touch them. Why? Because they're lepers. No one touches them. Their wife doesn't touch them. Their kids don't touch them. Nobody touches them. And so Jesus, I mean, he can heal them with his words, right? But he touches them to say, God is a God of with and touch, and I'm not afraid of your disease. I'm not afraid of your story. I'll touch. And so uh, the church has always laid hands, and we left in the, our worship uh, Leader Jeff and I said, we're going to do some more laying on of hands in this church. Nothing magical, just the touch is what we're talking about. And so you can expect some more of that as we go. Our next night of worship, if you're writing stuff down, this is a long sort of commercial for some stuff, is October 30th, and so about 12 weeks away. Uh, we do a missions giving Sunday in November. This year it's on the 13th. It's kind of a big deal if you've been around CCB. Last year, 75 grand came in in one day, and we've been giving all of that away all year. Uh, to mission work around the world. And so we're doing the same thing again for, I think, the fourth or fifth year in a row. But the October 30th night of worship will be focused on that evening where we'll pray for that. But here's how we're going to do it. And this is such a dream that hopefully can come true. We are working, starting really last week, trying to get all of our missionaries that we support home for that night of worship weekend and have them in this space with us. So we're praying with them and over them and for them. We're talking about Africa, from Germany, from Spain, from Mexico. Awesome. Can you imagine? From Honduras. Sorry. Uh, I know I'm going to miss somebody. 
um, and I'd like to thank uh, the rest of the people. But we're going to try and get all of our missionaries home. Uh, so A, you can meet them because you may be new with us, but B, how awesome would that be just to pray for them two weeks before we pay them, you know? Um, and so, isn't that awesome? Now, um, you can help us get there, and you'll see more about this in the coming weeks, but that means we're going to need housing for people. We might need spare vehicles for people. We may even hit you up for plane tickets. So uh, if that's weighing on your heart over the next few weeks, then let me know. You'll see that in the email newsletter as we go. All right, are you ready? Ruth, chapter 1, again. Did anybody read this this week? Got a few of you. Okay, so we're all set. Um, a couple of things about the series before we, I'm going to have a stand and we're going to read most of chapter 1 and then a couple of verses we'll read out loud together, which will be on the screen. But this series um, is rooted, well, the story of Ruth is anchored and rooted in this Hebrew word, which is, next slide, hesed. So say the word hesed with me. Ready? Go. Yeah, you got to learn that word. Uh, there's some guttural stuff on the front end, but I just sort of left it at hesed. If you're from the south like me, it's he said, all right? We're learning about that he said. Uh, but this is a Hebrew word. It's not a New Testament word. It's an Old Testament word, and it pops up in the Bible in various places. And Hebrew has less words in its language than most. And so the words move and bend, and they shape to different forms, and they mean many different things. But this one means, uh, next slide, the words that you'll see uh, it's basically, it's based on God's faithfulness, His love, His commitment to us, but it's not based on what is deserved, because we'd all be toast at that point. But it's based on His what? What's the word? Covenant. What's a covenant? You can't get out of a covenant. Not in the biblical sense. When the word covenant comes up in the Old Testament, blood is usually involved. There's bleeding for that. And so there is a love that the Old Testament talks about and a faithfulness and a commitment that God has to us. And the word that's used is the word hesed. Now, it'll show up in your, if you're reading your English Bible, I'm assuming you don't read a Hebrew Bible, so let me just help you out here. Uh, because of our translations, you'll read some of the, the Old Testament texts and you may come across words like uh, loving kindness or faithfulness or commitment or just the word kindly in some versions. All these words mean, all these words come from the word hesed. Uh, the 136th Psalm has 26 verses in it. And every verse ends with the phrase, his love endures forever. It's a congregational song. It was written to be sung. And so uh, the, the song leader would say the first part, and then there would be this all-skate participation at the end of it. And everyone would say in Hebrew, his love endures forever. And the word love there is the word hesed. And so this word, you'd, you'd miss it in the English translation, but it's all throughout the Old Testament. And again, let this sink in. It's a, it's a commitment and a faithfulness that God has to you, and it's not based on what you or I deserve, but based on his covenant with us. Romans 8, uh, or Romans 5, 8, for that matter, uh, says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a nice New Testament picture of Hesed. No, wherever we were in our state of life, God continued on with his promise, his covenant with us. Uh, Hesed is a nice, vivid Old Testament picture of grace. Grace exists in the Old Testament. It's amazing. And, uh, but it's often missed. And so this is the nature of the story of Ruth. It's anchored in this word. Uh, it appears for the first time uh, in the first chapter. And it actually appears in each chapter following. 
but this word makes up the story. And it's not just a story about God's faithfulness to people in the story, because in reality, the writer of the story doesn't talk about God that much. It's inferred. It's behind the scenes. We get to see God working behind the scenes. But what we get in the story of Ruth is a picture of what this kind of thing looks like between people. Because at the end of the day, whether you are a person of faith or a person just checking this out or a person totally opposed to faith and belief, no one would say, regardless of where you are in that, on that spectrum, no one would not learn what Hesed looks like and step back and not say, that's what I want. I want that in my marriage. I want that in my friendships. I want that kind of commitment and faithfulness and, and love. I want that sort of care in all of my relationships. I want to be that way to my kids. I want my kids to be that way to me. And so regardless of where you are, I just invite you to learn about this type of faith and love and commitment that God has for you, but also to think about how that looks between people. And Ruth is a fantastic story for us to sort of watch that unfold. Okay, is that good enough introduction? Here we go. Let's all stand together. I'm reading from Ruth chapter 1. You can listen along, and uh, the the screen will uh, show you some verses at the end that we'll read together. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Say the word Moab. Moab. You're with me. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilian. They were uh, Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Verse 3, what a way to start a story. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, which is Oprah's actual name, by the way. One named Orpah, one, the other named Ruth. And they had lived there about ten years. Both Milan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Let that sink in. And when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. When her two daughters-in-law, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. They're talking about Bethlehem. It's providing food. The word Bethlehem means house of food or house of bread. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, quote, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness, highlighted, that's the word hesed, to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that Uh, May the Lord grant that each of you would find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why, Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me. I don't know if you're single and you've ever said that. Even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had another husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and said, Good point, I'm leaving, goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people. 
and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, and we all read this together, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Let's pray. God, these words are powerful, and they are words that, at the end of the day, we want to hear from people. We want to hear these same kinds of words from our spouses, our kids, our friends, our co-workers. And above all of that, we just want to know that that's how you feel about us. And so God, I know that in a room full of people today, there are people standing that feel separated from you. There are people standing up right now that feel very distant from friends. They feel alone. And God, let today be the beginning of a message that we all keep continuing to hear over and over, that you were with us and that someone, you will provide someone for us, a Ruth, to stand with us in times of deep sorrow and trouble. And it's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Have a seat. I'm going to do my best to walk through just a couple of things here. It's a very big, I mean, we're, we're, we're biting off a lot here by doing one chapter a week uh, for the series. And so um, I'm going to do my best to uh, keep this on my head. I'm going to do my best to um, maybe just hit a couple of things for us. I want to talk about the setting first. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 1. And this is the setting of the story. Now, a couple of things about Ruth uh, that you need to know. We don't know who wrote it. It's very old. Um, 3,000 years old is probably a good guess. So it's a very old story, and it's a very old text. And it was probably told for generations before it was ever written down. And so we don't know it. We don't know who wrote it. The tradition is that Samuel wrote it, and that's because it leads to the story of Ruth becoming the great-grandmother of King David. And Samuel anointed David to become king, so perhaps he interviewed and wrote the story down of his great-grandmother. But at the end of the day, no one knows. However, in the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament book seem to be very unconcerned with authorship credit. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an issue for them. If they felt like it was the needed thing, they put their name in it. Like, these are the words of so-and-so at the time of this king and this place. But if it's not there, then it's not important, at least to the writer. And typically what that means is that we are being invited into something without much knowledge of the backstory, which leads us to simply drop into the story and start learning what it's about. There's no need for, like, extra behind-the-scenes, too much anyway, scholarship to figure out what's going on here. It's not important. What's important is the story and the lessons that are unfolding within the story. And so this is how the writer begins it. I mean, look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, that's where he begins. What is that? Well, Israel didn't have a king. They wanted a king, but they didn't have a king. And they kept begging God for a king. We want a king, just like that nation has a king or that people has a king. We want a king too. But God says, I want to be your king. I want to be your leader. I want to guide you. But that wasn't enough for them. They needed some people with skin on them. They felt like they needed to be like other people. And so what ended up happening was God put in place these people called judges. And they acted as 
this go-between between God and the people, and they govern the affairs of the people. But it wasn't a great system. Look at Judges 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's a fun place to live, isn't it? Everyone just made up the rules. Now, we all, to some degree, do what's right in our own eyes. Even as Christians, we read the Scriptures and say, this is what's right in my eyes, in my opinion, in my view of life and worldview. This is what I do. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about borderline lawlessness. This is talking about people just sitting around making up the rules and doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, which leads to a very self-centered, selfish culture, does it not? And so the writer from the very beginning tells us this is the setting in which this story unfolds, and it's no good. Look at what happens next. There was a—oh, by the way, let me just say this. When you're living in a culture like that, what, what you know does not need to happen to you is something go terribly wrong with you. This is what, I mean, the the writer is bringing us in saying, look, we understand what it was like then, or at least they did, and we have to go back and figure it out. But in the days when the judges ruled is not a day in which you want catastrophe and tragedy to come to your life, because if it's every man for himself, then it's going to be a tough ride. And so the next line is equally explosive. There was a famine (laughs) in the land. Now, the Hebrew here for the land is speaking of the land, the land. Judah, where the Israelites live, people of the land, that kind of land. There was a famine there, and geographically that's common. And so there was a famine. And then it says that this family, and we start to learn more of who these people are, this family packed up all their stuff, and they left the land, and they moved to another land, the country of Moab. Now, Moab has a long back-and-forth history with Israel. Sometimes it's peaceful. Maybe it is in this situation. We don't know. Sometimes it's not. There's some hostility, some history there. And what I find interesting is that the native land provided no food. From the native soil came death. But they go to a foreign soil to find life. That's a nice way of saying it's a desperate situation. And so they pack up their stuff and they leave. And now we learn who these people are. The man's name was Elimelech, his, ni- his wife's name Naomi. They had two kids, two boys, Milan and Kilian. They were from Bethlehem. And then in verse 3, the whole thing takes a turn. Naomi's husband dies. She dies, or he dies. And she's left, it says, with only her two sons. Now there's a little bit of a glimmer of hope. She, they marry two Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other named Ruth. And they were married for 10 years. And then it says in verse 5, just backing up again, we've already read, both Milan and Killian also died. And then I want you to feel the weight of what the writer says at the end of verse 5. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. She's left without her two sons and her husband. Now in an ancient cultural setting is this, that you're basically saying she's dead. There's nothing she can do. She's old. She has no support of a man, which in that culture was all you had. And the only thing that's left for a woman who's been widowed is begging, homelessness. Often was the case they got involved in sex trafficking, prostitution, death. 
That's it. And for the early listeners of this story, they would, they would feel that in their gut. It would be a pain. That's somebody's mother. That's somebody's wife. That's somebody's friend. And she was left alone without her two sons and her husband. Uh, Phyllis Tribble was, uh, a long time ago, an Old Testament professor at Columbia University. And this is what she said about this part of the, uh, of the story. Next slide. Stranger in a foreign land, this woman is a victim of death and life. Now, there's some stuff that comes before that. Just hold your eyes up there and then listen to how she leads into this. From wife to widow, from mother to no mother, this female is stripped of all identity. The security of husband and children, which a male-dominated culture affords its women, is hers no longer. The definition of worth by which it values the female applies to her no more. The blessings of old age, which it gives through progeny, are there no longer. She is a stranger in a foreign land. And that last part is basically, she doesn't want to die, but she doesn't want to live either. Have you ever felt that way? Suspended between this horrible event and a hopeful future? You don't want to live, but you don't want to die either. And so the story in five verses is very explosive. I mean, in five verses we have famine, relocation, death, marriage, and death again. And then we're left with this scene of an aged widow who has lost everything in a world and a culture that doesn't treat people so well. We do a little bit better today. I mean, we take care of people a little bit better than they did then. But back then, the only protection for a woman when Naomi was alive was a man. And the only phrase that makes sense to me is just a really low-level standard phrase, her world caved in. Now, I know that we go through difficult days, you know, where it starts off in the morning and we spill gas on our pants at the gas station and the coffee spills and it just, you ever have those days, one thing after another and you're like, I just want the day to end? I know you do. I follow you on Facebook. (laughs) I'm watching, I'm listening. Now that's nothing like this, but maybe you are someone who has experienced such loss whether it's career, family, husband, kids, all, all of those. Maybe you've experienced that. And this is what we know about pain and suffering. A, it just happens. You're not invincible to that. Jesus even said, in this life you're going to have trouble. Amen to that. It's not, you can't avoid that. But also what pain and suffering does is it causes us to really check ourselves. C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, highly recommended. Uh, My copy only cost a buck, so good luck. But it's about 100 pages, and it's his intellectual treatment and dealings with the problem, as he calls it, of pain and suffering. And one of the things that he uh, illustrates in there is that pain is often God's megaphone to us, or for us, or at us. He's not saying that all pain and suffering is God's doing, But all pain and suffering causes us to step back and recognize and admit that we are not above the system, whatever the system is, and that we are not invincible. No matter how smart, how rich, how fast, how savvy, we're not invincible to problems. Amen? And this is what he says. Uh, Pain removes the veil. It 
plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. That cut me right to the middle. The first and lowest operation of pain shatters the illusion that all is well. That's it. It breaks down the thought that I can somehow live absent or away or disconnected from pain, but it isn't possible. And the writer of Ruth, I mean, back here in the first five verses, sets up for us a very, very difficult story. Because again, this takes place in the days when the judges ruled. Not quite anarchy, but pretty close. And then in verse 5, if you lose your family, your husband, and your two kids, that's a, that's a real difficult place to be. Now, when you and I end up in situations of pain and suffering, we do react. We try and maybe figure it out intellectually, or we um, suppress it, like put it way down, like those are fun. That's fun people right there, like they're just waiting to snap. And we all do that to some level. We just take it and we push it down. I'm sort of an emoter, so all my problems you know about, (laughs) which I usually go home on Sundays and go, why did I say that? Or we project our pain onto other people. I don't know if you have those people in your life, but, and maybe you're one of them, but if you don't think you're one of them, you may be one of them. But we tend to sometimes project it onto others. This is what I've learned in ministry, and it's just sort of a layman. I'm an amateur at this, but I've learned in ministry. This is what I've learned. Um, when someone yells at me or is mad at me or is going off on me about something, I've learned, and it's taken a long time, that it is not about me. There's something going on back there. So I just want you to know that. You can can yell at me. You can go off on me. You can do that because I know that it's actually, there's something else happening. And I'm just the guy that you can, and that's okay. I've just learned that sometimes people project their pain Or we pick up an old addiction. That's common, is it? I'm suffering, I'm going through a difficult time, I'll just grab this again. Or we may try and escape, or worse, suicide. Just end it. I like what Naomi does, not because I think it's a great thing to do, but just because I think it resonates with us. Look at verses 19 through 21 in the story. Watch how Naomi deals with this. I mean, she does in a positive way make a move to go back home. There's at least hope, a small hope, that she might be taken care of. Because that's what we get in verse 6. She learned that there's food there, that things are happening. And so maybe she can go back and find some family. So there's a little bit of hope there. But it's not dominating her posture. She's very depressed. And in verse 19, so the two women... Uh, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. It's a small town because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? I mean, it's been 10 years, so, you know, is this Naomi? And look at her response. Don't call me Naomi, (laughs) she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter, which is what the word Mara means. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. She sounds like a female Job. And certainly she knows that story. It's so simple, and just please catch this. The way that Naomi deals with this, at least outwardly, is she changes her name. 
Now, name changes in the Bible were common, but it's usually the reverse. It's usually because something extraordinary has happened. You know, the, Saul in the New Testament. Saul is reckless against the first church. Jesus gets a hold of him on a trip to Damascus, changes his life. He turns into Paul. Abram gets called out of uh, his home, his homeland, his country to move, and his name changes to Abraham. On and on and on. Name changes are common in the Bible, but it's usually because of progression. This one is in the reverse. This one goes backwards. Now, Naomi basically says to the people around her, the people she knows, those women, that Naomi you're talking about 10 years ago, I don't know who that is. She's no longer with us. And so my new name is this. It's a horrible series of events. And through those events, Naomi had reached a point of spiritual and emotional exhaustion and confusion that she no longer recognized her old self as the woman that she used to be. Does that resonate? We say it like this. Again, a very low-level example. But we say things like, man, I'm a loser. And I don't mean like you lost the foosball game and you're a loser. I mean you really say that and you really mean it. Whether you lost a job or she walked out on you or something terrible happened at work or, or you're a parent and you're hanging out with other parents and you're watching how good they are with their kids and your kid's got mud all over his face and running around and stabbing other kids with sticks and you think, <laughs> that one's personal. Uh, <laughs> And, and you think, I'm a loser as a parent. And so, it's not that you walk around and say, I'm changing my name. But certainly, everyone in this room has had moments, whether when you were in high school or yet last week, where you wish that no one recognized you. Are you with me? You wish you could just go into the public square and no one would recognize, oh, that's the guy that this happened to. And so what I think she's doing is something we all do. We all wish at times we can just disappear. Straight into anonymity. Out of the public square and into secrecy and isolation. Because it's just better there, right? And so through a series of events, horrible events, she's losing her own identity and she's accepting that. And she says what we all say. I'm not that person anymore. So I'll just lean into it. And I'll be bitter. Pain and suffering can do that to you. Now, I think we're in a good spot. This is a horrible conclusion, but let's back up. I didn't know how to end this thing, but I knew we were going to be in 16 and 17. Ruth replied, this is before they get to Bethlehem, of course, and this is right after um, Naomi says, don't, don't come back with me. And the reason that she's saying to Ruth and Orpah, like, don't, don't come back with me. And then Ruth is begging, and she's like, seriously, just stay home. Part of this is Naomi's caring. It's, it's, it's a picture of Naomi caring very deeply for Ruth. She's not angry. I mean, think about it. If she does go with her and it doesn't go well, then we have two problems. And Naomi is thinking of Ruth saying, you can go back. You're young. You're pretty. You can find yourself a nice new life you got a lot of years ahead of you. Don't come with me and blow it. So she's thinking of that, and she's thinking of her, another form of, of hesed. 
But Ruth says to her this beautiful poem, this, these riffs about commitment and faithfulness and love and what we learn from these. I mean, let's just look at them. Do not urge me to leave you. Do not turn I will, or turn back from me. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you will, uh, your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord, and that word Lord there is the word Yahweh. It's the name of God. So this is very personal. May Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Sometimes we read that and go, man, that's beautiful. Put it on a greeting card. But it's actually, it's very depressing at the same time. Ruth's outlook on the situation doesn't seem all that positive either. It moves from, look, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to go with you. And the only things that she begins, I mean, the movement is from I'm going with you to people, to death and burial. Perhaps she feels like this isn't going to end well either, but I'll just go down with you. And then that peace right there, may the Lord deal with me. We're getting a picture that perhaps Ruth, for certain she did this, but adopted the faith of her husband. She's a Moabite. They worship all kinds of gods. But through the course of her marriage with one of Ruth's, or one of Naomi's sons, that she's grown to love the Lord. And so she knows and fears him. Let him deal with me. It's not your call. God and I have already made this decision. I'm going with you. And Naomi, of course, tried to deter her, again, for obvious reasons. And nothing is mentioned of their past together. Just a little riff there that says 10 years. But it's clear from these words that something took place between these two women to develop such a love and such a care for one another. So what does all this mean? (laughs) As we wrap up chapter 1... Um, I think this is going to sound so um, obvious. I mean, the most lightweight spiritual question that a pastor can ask at this point is, okay, who's your Ruth? Who's your Naomi? But the genre of this story, Old Testament books have genres. The genre of this book is story. And the writer took great pains to piece together the story of Ruth's life in such a way that when we read it or hear it, we're drawn into it. It's actually also written in a way that it's easy to memorize. Hebrew had that sort of component to it. And so it's written and put down for us and read to us in such a way that we're, I mean, it's very detailed in such that we're drawn into the story. And the point of story genre in the Old Testament is simply imitation. That's it. Most of the Old Testament stories about people, they're not for imitation. Most stories in the Old Testament about people's lives are there so that we won't do that. Are you with me? David and Bathsheba, don't do that. That's not an idea session in the book of Samuel. That's a don't do that situation. But Ruth is written for us to read, to internalize, to understand it. And then to emulate it, to copy it, to cut and paste right into our own relationships. Does that make sense? And these words right here that Ruth says to Naomi, I mean, we, 
we could certainly, there's probably a lot there. There is a lot there. I mean, we could do some language studies and we could branch these things off and rabbit trail and make connections to other books in the Bible. We can lift a phrase here like, where you go, I will go. And we'll find something that Jesus said that sounds the same and we'll go, wow, look at the connection. And we could do that and that stuff's very good. And we could look at the structure and the way it's set up and say, okay, this is what God was doing. This is what the writer's saying. This is what Ruth's doing. Naomi's doing and, and on and on and on. We could do all of that and it's all good. But the point of these words is not that. The point of these words are that you and I read them, we learn them, we get it, we're leveled by them, and then we do them. That's it. And I hesitate to say it this way, but there is nothing deeper in that part of the story than that. That you and I should read what Ruth is saying, and of course the whole book unfolds this way, but we read what Ruth is saying and we step back and say, okay, I got to be that for somebody. I'm called to be that person. That's all I need to know. And there is nothing deeper. You want to grow deep in your faith? Let me give you the secret. There's nothing deeper than learning what the scripture says and then just going and doing it. Nothing. What does it really mean to love your enemy? Let's just talk about that for six years. Go do it, and you will learn like you've never learned. You'll come back wounded, bloody, angry, doubtful, and stronger. And if I can read those words and say, all right, I got people living around me. It's not just you people. I love you people, but I got neighbors too. And they have needs, and they're Naomi's sometimes. They've lost everything. I've seen the foreclosure signs go on the windows, just like you have. And God is calling me through the story of Ruth to plant myself in people's lives so that I can be that for them. And that's the challenge, and that's the inspiration. And some of you are in the room today, and you're going, Ruth and my girl, I'm Naomi. And the prayer for you, and the admonition for you, is that you hang in there. I mean, Naomi's not the hero here, even though she does take a little bit of a step. She's still pretty bitter. But you hang in there, and, and I believe this when I say this, God has people in your life, whether you know it or not, that are Ruth's. And it's okay to find them. And it's okay to let them go with you. Don't we do this? Like I'm going through a hard time, and somebody comes up and says, hey, let me help you, and you say no. Go back. But God's saying, I don't work that way. I put people in your life like Ruth. She's annoying. And she says, no, no. I'm going with you. And so the lesson here for you is to allow that to happen. Because it may be God working in your life and you do not know it. Does that make sense? Cool. We'll end there. That's chapter one. And this story is explosive, and it just has some amazing components to it, but we'll leave it at that. We're supposed to get that and emulate it, and then we're supposed to let that, let people do that for us too. And if you're going through a tough time right now, if you're a Naomi, if that's who you resonate with, and someone has reached out to you, let them in. That's the only advice I can give. Let them in. It may be God working to help you. Amen? Let's stand and pray, and then we'll sing a song or two before we leave.
God, we stand as a people today um, just wanting to know you more, and that's why we're here. It's one of the reasons we're here, and God, we get a nice picture of who you are through the words of a Moabite. It's kind of like the Good Samaritan, a non-Jew, showing the love of God to a fallen Jew. And so we stand here today, maybe just a little bit of an impression has been made on our hearts and minds that through the words of Ruth, we see how much you care about us. That's the kind of love you have for us, always there. As your word says in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from your love. And God, help us to translate that into our relationships in our neighborhoods, in our buildings, in our places of work, in our families, and here. And just help us as we walk through this old story and just inspire us and challenge us and grow us and stretch us to live out this kind of love, this chesed, that describes only what you can ordain, a grace and a love not based on performance but on covenant. And for that, we are so grateful. And we stand and sing, uh, as we stand and sing, just fill our hearts with uh, that truth. In your name that we pray and everyone said, Amen. amen. Let's sing.